This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, tough times for the UCP party and Jason Kenney with all kinds of political infighting as they try and navigate this fourth wave of the pandemic. How will you feel about all of the campaign promises when it comes to spend, spend, spend? All parties were on board. Of course, the Liberals elected and they have a big bill and misinformation on Reddit has become unmanageable. Three Alberta moderators say it's just out of control. They're actually being threatened. What do we need to do to try and rein in that platform? What could happen today? What is the political process that could unfold today? Let's try and get some details on that. We're going to chat now with Lori Williams, who's a political scientist at... um, Mount Royal University. Uh, Laurie, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Great to join you, Shane. Okay, so let's just walk through this. We know there's going to be a caucus meeting today. Mm -hmm. We've seen published reports that some of the senior members may ask for his resignation. He could be forced into a vote of confidence in his leadership. So let's just walk through those. If there is a confidence vote today among the UCP caucus and Jason Kenney loses that vote, what does that mean for him? Well, it's it's not something that can legally be enforced, but how he can continue to govern without their confidence is, is uh, impossible to imagine. Uh, what he's going to try to do is delay any sort of decisive uh, motion and, and just sort of try to work um, strategically around the various members of caucus, perhaps making assurances and promises, and trying to pull this out, convince them that um, whatever their differences are, they're better off with his leadership than without it. Um, the, the key for him, I think, is to try to delay anything, particularly, and it, it, there may be a fair bit of support for this, particularly since we are in the middle of the fourth wave of the pandemic. We're in a lot of trouble, and that ought to be the focus. And, you know, some Albertans, even if they don't support Jason Kenney, may, may actually have some sympathy with that position. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. This is not the time. I mean, you, you don't want to be focused on internal party politics at a time like this. You would like to have, you know, some stability. I I agree with him completely. So he does he hold the cards here? Ultimately, can the party, if they do... If he loses the confidence vote, that doesn't trigger anything automatically, constitutionally, or whatever the case may be, to force anything. It does within the party. Okay, but but as far as what's happening, I mean, the the party is governed by its internal um, rules or bylaws. Uh, It's it's for all intents and purposes a private entity. There's there's nothing sort of constitutionally that happens. Um, or legally that happens outside of the party. But again, I mean, I don't think it's going to come to that. I think he's going to delay the vote and try to work um, whatever he can in the way of strategy to get, uh, make deals, get support, uh, and, and or at least delay this until Alberta's in better shape in the hopes that he can he can persuade enough of those folks that are opposing him right now to support him down the road. Um, the only actual constitutional or... or um, enforceable uh, motion that can happen here would either come would, would actually come from a vote of confidence in the legislature in the legislature and that would force an election and of course 
None of these folks want to go. No, no, none of the UCP members want to go to an election right now. They know that they'd be in trouble if that happened. And of course, he's going to try to use that as leverage. Of course. Yeah, uh, we know that that's the nuclear option for Jason Kenney, and he's put it on the table before. So just so I'm 100% clear on this, the UCP party, the caucus, all of the, you know, the senior advisors, the people involved in the party administration, all the rest of it, they can make all the noise that they want, but there is no mechanism for them to actually force the premier out. It comes down to him until it comes to a leadership review. And even then, uh, he, he's still the one that makes the call as, as to when he leaves. Well, and not entirely. Again, <clears throat> as we've seen this before, we're, we need to sort of distinguish between the, the party and what it can do right. and, and what can be done legally, legally or constitutionally. And, and here we're talking about essentially political pressure, following the rules of this private organization. Yes. You know, if they wanted to enforce it, I suppose they could go to court, but all of that's time-consuming and, and cumbersome. Uh, that's not really what anybody's focusing on right now. What everybody's focusing on right now is whether Jason Kenney's leadership can survive this challenge, because it doesn't matter if you say, uh, I don't need to listen to you. Look at what has ha- how, many, how many premiers have we seen forced out, even though there wasn't anything legally that could actually push them. And the... the the social and political forces behind this are quite significant and impossible to resist if it comes to, to that kind of um, sort of, uh, if there are enough people, if there are enough voices, enough pressure, there's, there's no choice right. practically but for him to, for him to resign. <clears throat> At this point, he just wants to try to delay things in hopes to, that he can bring it back around. Right, exactly. So his goal today is to try and make sure that it a confidence vote in his leadership doesn't actually occur today. Push that back right. as far as he can until things turn around. Well, exactly. And of course, he's also concerned um, about the possibility of constituency associations forcing a leadership review. But again, a lot of wiggle room yeah. there, right? So essentially what he can do is, as we often see, particularly with strategists in politics, is they use the rules. They'll, you know, in a meeting, use Robert's rules of order to prevent somebody from bringing a motion forward or, um, you know, basically use their knowledge of the rules to, to delay things if they can't do anything else uh, until such time as they can work um, work out some kind of solution to it. So there's the sort of strategic using the rules to your advantage dimension of this, and then there's, there's the, I guess, the more political or strategic part of this, which involves trying to persuade enough people that they're better off with Jason Kenney than whatever than with whoever might might follow. Because what we're seeing, of course, is a lot of questions about Jason Kenney from people who supported him. Yes. You know, this vice president of policy, Joel Mullen, is is saying some pretty dramatic things, having been a, a staunch supporter of Jason Kenney at one time. But it also highlights the problem in that Joel Mullen's problem in part is that Jason Kenney introduced vaccine passports. And there are a whole lot of other people who thought it came too late. I mean, how is somebody going to govern this party when there are these deep divisions within the, within it? And I think both sides are hoping that their their um, their view will carry the day. That that a leader that agrees with them will be the one that's in charge. But that's not going to resolve the problem. It's not going to help the healthcare crisis, and it's probably not going to help the party in the long run. Yeah, and Laurie, one thing that you mentioned was the the prospect of an election, and we know that the Premier, apparently, there were reports floated that at a previous meeting where his leadership was being challenged. That is sort of his nuclear option, right? Where if he feels like he's lo- he, he can say, okay, get behind me, stick with me, or that's it, I'm calling an election right now, and we all go home, right? I mean, that is his nuclear option to sort of say, if you really want to do this, this is where I'll take it. Right. Uh, but, but I mean, it can be far short of that. He can say simply, you know, do you 
do you want me or do you want the NDP? Right. Do you want me or do you want socialism? Those are the kinds of the, the kinds of arguments um, that he will make. Those were the arguments he made to try to bring the party together, to unite the conservatives that were divided and continue to be divided within the party, bringing them together and getting them to work together in spite of the fact they disagree, uh, simply because they are united in, dis- in opposing um, the possibility of the NDP government. Yeah, and that's the prospect that uh, nothing unites a conservative better than uh, the words Premier Rachel Notley. Well, yes and no, um, because it's important to remember that some people within the uh, the new UCP party, formerly the Wildrose Party, are not primarily focused on governing. They are primarily focused on principle, on 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 um, the ideals, the values that are central to them, and and that's why they left the UCP. That's why they were willing to form a different party. They were hoping they'd bring enough people on side to win government, but thought it was it was more there was more integrity almost in opposing um, some policies from outside than from within the party. And that's that's the danger that, that clearly Jason Kenney's been guarding against since he first took office. Um, and as a result, it's meant that a a relatively small minority of uh, of Albertans have had. Uh, many people think disproportionate influence on, on government policy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, good information. Thank you for clearing that up for us, Laurie. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. That's Laurie Williams, an associate professor and student advisor in the Department of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. So there you go. not forget the fact we had a federal election on Monday. Uh, it was sort of wiped right off the map yesterday in our province, at least. But uh, when we were talking about the federal election in the lead up during the campaign, we had a number of guests on and we kept saying, how come nobody's talking about monetary policy or fiscal policy or paying down the debt? It's all just spend, spend, spend right across the board. You know, you name it. Child care, pharmacare. Didn't matter. Yeah, the money's there. We're going to spend the money. We're going to spend the money. Um our national debt is over a trillion and a half dollars. There's a lot of bills coming due. So let's have a discussion about where we are and what that's going to look like when those bills do come due and all this money that we're planning to spend um, starts to add up. We'll chat with Bill Robson, now, who's the chief executive officer of the C.D. Howe Institute. Bill, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. Let's get on to talking about the money. <laughs> it, it really was kind of interesting to watch this campaign because not one party really was talking about fiscal restraint in any way, shape, or form. All three were on board with massive amounts of spending. That I hadn't seen that before. No, I don't remember anything like it. I think partly what's happened in Canada, we get so many of our cues in terms of headlines and the popular mood from the United States. And in the United States... Uh, any sense of fiscal responsibility is kind of out the window. Uh, and and the Fed, their central bank, is buying uh, so much government debt that I think a lot of people have bought into this idea that you can somehow get the central bank to keep buying debt. Mm-hmm. And, and it's basically free money for as far ahead as, as you can see. And when I looked at the uh, promises that were being made, and the, you've referred to so many of them already, kind of uh, you know doubling down on everything, I realized uh, people are, are thinking as though what happened last year, you know, party as though it's 2020, uh, as though that could go on forever, uh, and, and overlooking the fact that over time, you're going to pay about a dollar for every dollar the government spends in programs, and that's not a matter of ideology, it's just math. Yeah, let's break that apart a little bit, because right now, when you're talking about borrowing all of this money, it's not a bad time to be borrowing the money 
given this, like, this day, this moment in time right now in terms of borrowing money, things look pretty good, right? Oh, yeah. I, I don't have a problem with what governments did at the onset of the pandemic. I think it was a good idea to um, uh, both cushion the, the blow, uh, de- delay collecting some taxes, maybe forgive some taxes in the long run. That's how it's going to work out, provide a lot of those uh, transfer payments. Uh, and I also don't have a problem with the fact that central banks uh, cranked out a lot of cash because the world was suddenly very short of cash. Sure. And one of the things we look for central banks to do is to provide it. Um, but the what happened as a result, if you look at the federal budget, uh, and, and, and I, I went through this exercise, and I was thinking, I wonder how this does look uh, over time. And the federal government has some investment income, so we don't resent that at tax time. It flows in from places, including the Bank of Canada. Uh, they also, as we all know, pay interest on debt. They also have these unfunded pensions that over time they're having to pay down. So those are programs that most of us don't get to enjoy. So I said, what do you, if you take the investment income out of the revenue and you take the debt servicing costs and the pension stuff out of, out, out of spending... Uh, how does it work out over time? And the answer is, not surprisingly, it's about a dollar. Uh, uh, you know, it goes up and down over time, uh, but usually it's about a dollar, and it always goes back towards a dollar. Well, in last fiscal year, it was down to 50 cents. That's never happened before. Hmm. And now people seem to be thinking, hey, at 50 cent dollars, you know, what can't we do? <laughs> well, it doesn't last. So what's the timeline we're looking at where this 50 cent, uh, you know, what we have to pay for what we get in terms of a program? When does that change and get back to the more typical range of a dollar? Well, it already is changing. I mean, last year's 50 cents, that's not something that you can sustain over time unless you want to turn yourself into, you know, Zimbabwe or someplace with with hyperinflation. Uh, In the current fiscal year, the parliamentary budget office before the election put out some projections. So I looked at those. And I thought, well, we're getting close to 75 cents uh, this fiscal year. No one's really noticed it yet. Uh, And then I looked at their projections going a few years out. And sure enough, it went to 97 cents. I looked at the uh, conservative platform. I looked at the liberal platform. And it's all within a few cents. So pretty soon, we are going to be paying a dollar in tax, give or take a few cents, a nickel maybe at the most, uh, for every dollar we receive in programs. And at that point, I think people are going to be thinking very differently about all these promises that sounded so good. Uh, what's the ramifications of that? I think it's pretty obvious, but obviously, I mean, these programs have to be funded somehow. So can we expect more in the way of taxes or a reduction in programs? That's really the only two options, the only two levers you can pull. Well, I think that some tax hikes are definitely a threat. I would not like to see it. I don't think that the economy is going to do well with higher taxes. But again, there's this populist mood, so uh, you, you certainly can't rule it out. But even with some tax hikes, uh, one of the things I was thinking as I looked at these promises was it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a public program like pharmacare or long-term care or daycare, uh, or whether you're looking at some of the things that affect businesses like some of the subsidies for research or subsidies for carbon capture and on and on and on. I mean, the list you were commenting on the way in is a very long oh, list. Oh, yeah. All, all of these things are long-term. If I'm a business person and I'm thinking about making a big investment right now and, and, and the government is offering me all this money, logically, I'm going to be thinking, seriously, how long is that going to go on? And as a practical matter, if you're in that situation, I would not count on the money lasting more than two or three years because the public mood's going to change radically when we have to start covering 100 cents on the dollar. So we could be back into a position where Canadians are actually talking about monetary policy and fiscal policy and how we're going to manage our debt? 
Well, I think it's going to come to uh, it sooner or later. I hope it doesn't come to it because there's a sudden increase in interest rates. Uh, I'll just mention again, though, in the United States, they're in a, uh, a very peculiar mood down there. And of course, they weigh a lot more than we do when it comes to how much they borrow and the size of their economy. And if things start to go uh, in the wrong direction there, we'll, we'll get hit, uh, we'll get sideswiped by that. Um, it'd be better if we kind of proactively said, hey, we've exposed ourselves to a lot of risk here, including the risk that we're just going to not be able to sustain these programs. I think it will be a mixture. I don't think that Canadians are inherently irresponsible. In our personal finances, we're not irresponsible that way. So I think it's a mood that'll, that'll pass uh, as I, as I said, the thing that concerns me is that we might get a bit of a jolt that uh, moves us out of it in a more painful way than we could otherwise manage. All right. We'll watch and see how it goes. But I think uh, a lot of people were watching from the sidelines and going, boy, that's a tremendous amount of money you're talking about spending. And sooner or later, we're going to have to reckon with it. So uh, thanks for the insight, Bill. I appreciate we are. it. Thank you. Okay, that's Bill Robson, who is the chief executive officer of the C.D. Howe Institute. And uh, we were talking about it during the campaign, and uh, it was a very different campaign in terms of the fact that there wasn't, you know, the Tories uh, did say we will return to balanced budgets in 10 years. That was the plan. That's what they were talking about doing. But they were talking about spending a truckload of money between now and then, just like the rest of the parties. If you've listened to this show, you know I consider it to be um, the erosion of our very society. I don't, I don't think I'm being extreme. Uh, I think the social media landscape out there uh, is just destructive as all get out. Uh, the, the damage that it does to everything. Uh, there's some good points to social media. I'm not saying it's all bad, you know, um, but the whole online information sphere is toxic to democracy to public safety, to you name it. The list goes on and on. I I read a poll this weekend that just sent a chill down my spine. It's from the Pew Research Center in the United States. The Pew Research Center um, does a lot of work with media, analyzing media and um, information and all the rest of that stuff. They put out a poll this weekend that said the share of U.S. adults who say they get news regularly from Facebook, 31%. 31% of people report getting news regularly from Facebook. I think we've identified the problem. 22% say they get news regularly from YouTube. Um, and we know, we know Facebook and YouTube are major, major sources of misinformation, right? We've documented that. It's proven over and over and over again that you can go down a rabbit hole with both of those platforms and end up just being bombarded with misinformation. And people talk about critical thinking and they talk about intelligence. No, no, no. If you spend your life immersed in that misinformation sphere, it has an impact on you and we see the inevitable outcome, right? And it's playing out very, very nicely in Alberta right now. We're dealing with it. All kinds of different theories about this, that, and the other thing. And and it affects us. It affects all of us. So uh, it's a problem. Right now, though, we're going to talk about Reddit, which as far as I know, uh, I've never gone on Reddit. I don't know Reddit that well. But basically, it's an online forum. You, uh, people go on there and they chat about whatever they want to chat about. And it's broken down into subreddits. So we're going to take a look at what's going on with the Edmonton subreddit here. And, it, and it, it's, it's the same thing across the, the, the board when it comes to Reddit. This is happening everywhere. Basically, what the situation is, is the misinformation on that platform has exploded as we've gone through the COVID-19 pandemic. It's run rampant. And who's trying to manage it all? 
moderators, and they've had enough, and they're saying it has reached a crisis level. So we are going to chat now with Troy Pavlik, who is a moderator for r slash Edmonton. Did I say that right, Sarah? Is that how you say it? Or Redmonton? Is that what you'd say? How do you pronounce it? Sarah probably goes on Reddit because she's like 21. Or she's on the phone. She can't tell me. Uh, Basically, it's a subreddit. It has more than 136,000. 136,000 people are on this thing. So, Troy, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Shay. Okay, so we're talking primarily about this subreddit dealing with Edmonton, but I'm sure it's right across the platform, right? This this misinformation situation? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say Edmonton probably has it. We're better off than some of the uh, more prominent subreddits. The Alberta subreddit is substantially worse. Okay, yeah, exactly. Fair enough. Um, So just give us a snapshot. What are you seeing? What is the current state of these subreddits when we're talking about misinformation? I mean, 50 to 100 misinformation posts a day, uh, aggressive botting campaigns where the same thing we've seen in the 2016 election on Twitter, where there are organizations dedicated to specifically basically upsetting our democracy, causing mass panic, causing disinformation, all the things that you think about that are evil, and you mentioned off the top about upsetting democracy, we're seeing that happen uh, in a local context on the Edmonton subreddit. So now you're saying um, it's not just individuals doing this, you're seeing actual organized campaigns that are taking part in this? You know, it's hard to tell because uh, Reddit culturally is a very anonymous platform. You sign up with a username. It's not your real name. I'm the only moderator that moderates with my real name. um, And that's just culturally different on Reddit. So, you know, it could be a lot of very, very dedicated, similar individuals who are putting in hundreds of hours every week to do this. But we both know it's not. Uh, This is a campaign. Um, I'm wondering, have you seen it increase around COVID-19? It seems like misinformation has just exploded over the last year or so. Yeah and no. Um, So the thing with misinformation, and especially on social media platforms, is it's like the frog in the boiling pot of water. Mm -hmm. We've seen this ramp up over the past decade. Um, But with COVID-19, with everyone being locked inside, and with an infectious disease that has a lot of developing information, it's been the flashpoint that has caused, just like our case counts, exponential increase in disinformation. And like you said, we've reached the breaking point. This is getting to be a problem that we cannot solve anymore. Yeah. Um, first of all, as a moderator, is that a paid position or are you doing this as a volunteer? <laughs> I mean, how, how exactly did you end up being a moderator on Reddit? Uh, you know, it's I was on Reddit enough and it's a volunteer position. It's oh. Reddit, just like <laughs> Facebook, just like every social media company, abdicates their responsibility for responsible discourse by offloading the responsibility to volunteers so that they get to throw away their hands and say, ah, the moderators can deal with it. We're all volunteers. We're all citizens. We are not paid. We do not have any specific training. It is just simply, we care about this community, so we do it. Okay, let's dig into that a little bit. Reddit has no, they don't even give you guys lip service, as in, you know what, oh, we we, we believe that misinformation is a problem and we're going to do something about it. I mean, even Facebook says that. They don't do anything, but they say that. Reddit doesn't even go that far? Uh, Reddit has said a couple things. They've issued a couple statements. But, you know, long-standing Reddit has this culture of it's the Wild West. You know, it is anything you can say goes. They've started to clean up their act in the past couple years and ban some of the, like, very nefarious things. We're talking things that are illegal, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 
things that would cause, you know, violent outbreaks or illegal pornography. Those subreddits have started to get cleaned up, but that's the best we've seen from Reddit. The talk about, you know, misinformation and, you know, the civil part of it, Reddit's not going to touch that. <laughs> so as a moderator, it falls to you. Do they give you any guidance? Do they have a policy? Do they have, a, you know, like, here's 10 bullet points. If you see this, you need to get rid of it. Or are you basically just making this up as you go? We're making it up as we go. And, you know, Boy. we, the volunteers, are making it up in our own way. So there are subreddits that encourage misinformation. And, you know, they organize misinformation campaigns because the moderators of those subreddits decide that's what they want to do. And the platform certainly enables that. That's frightening. Um, how, okay, as you've seen this, you know, a 50 to 100 posts a day for a volunteer. How, how do you keep up with this? I mean, how many moderators are there and what's the workload like? You know, there's six or eight of us. We try to recruit, but, you know, we lose moderators all the time. I myself have, you know, stepped back in recent months just because it gets to be too much. And, you know, the volume isn't the problem. It's the content. Uh, When we're looking around the province and we're seeing everyone, our friends, our families, literally dying, and someone jumps on Reddit, and post something that would cause the death of our friends and families. Like, that that hurts. Mm-hmm. It's something that you, and seeing it day in, day out, I, I don't, I have a stomach for it. I can do it, and I keep going, but it's it's taxing. Absolutely it is. And the other thing, and, you know, I'm glad that you came on. Uh, we're speaking with Troy Pavlik, a moderator. Um, there's other moderators that who have spoken about this publicly to the media and others who were not willing to give their name and did not yep. want to publicly identify because of the vitriol and the threats that you guys face for simply doing a volunteer job. I mean, so this this interview was spurned from the CBC article that talked with me and the other two moderators. Yeah. I've already received a death threat about that article. Are you um, kidding? It, like, it's par for the course. And I mean, like, typical response is we remove a COVID misinformation post uh, the user says, ah, but ivermectin's great. Go kill yourself. That's, that's it. That's the, that's the most gentle response we typically receive. They're not actively seeking you. I mean, it, it's all just online keyboard warriors at this point, right? Let's hope. I expect it's bluster, um, and that's why I'm comfortable, you know, putting my real name on it and going forward. I've only in my life received one threat that I deemed to be credible, and I talked with uh, law enforcement mm-hmm. about, um, and I'm still alive, so... Good. (laughs) Maybe uh, find a different hobby, Troy. You know, I mean, if this is, I mean, if you were making big bucks doing this, I'd say, okay, good for you. Volunteer position doesn't seem like it's worth it to me. You know, at the end of the day, Shay, though, if I don't do it, what we've enabled is we've said this has become the Wild West and it gives credence for more people to do it. And now this community that has brought me joy in the past will no longer ever bring joy to anyone else. Yeah. And like, you know, do I suffer through it to uh, make the world better for the people that come after? I like that idea, but it is also an internet forum. So, you know, maybe that's too high-minded. You know what? I think you're sort of arguing with the discussion a lot of people had. It's admirable. I appreciate you putting in this work and trying to clean up this sphere, but, um, We've had so many discussions on the air here, Troy, with people saying, you know what, we need to... Mo-. It's the internet. It is the Wild West. And if you shut it down in one area, it's going to pop up in another. And people who want to be part of this will be part of it. It's almost... I don't know how you get a handle on it. I mean, guys like you on the front line, tip of the hat, thank you so much. But boy, oh boy, it's like, you know, it's like drinking from a garden hose. 
You know, Shay, there's two problems here. One is, and uh, you've talked about the studies, we know that the bulk of COVID misinformation comes from, you know, about 12, I think, specific bad actors. Yeah. So we know that, you know, there's organized campaigns and there's COVID disinformation. And that stuff, that's actually fairly easy to filter out. You know, the stuff where it's a mechanized campaign, you can write scripts, you can use software to help filter that out. The problem is when a population becomes weaponized by this misinformation and people feel like they're deputized to act. And when it's regular people from their regular accounts that, you know, have a history of being good posts, when they start getting behind the misinformation train, that's when we have a problem. And in Alberta, you know, when you have a premier that gets up in front of cameras and spreads disinformation, that's going to weaponize the population. And that's what we see in Alberta. And every time there's a press conference, there's a deluge of misinformation posts. Well, I mean, it's, it, people are just going to weigh in and fight over everything that's said. It doesn't matter who says it at this point, Troy. So uh, I don't envy you. I, I admire you. And, uh, and I wish you all the luck in the world. And I think you're going to need it. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time this morning, Troy. I really appreciate it. Okay. Have a great day. You too. That is Troy Pavlik, a moderator uh, on Reddit. Deals with the uh, subreddit for Edmonton, which has 136,000 people in I don't know, you know what, ultimately, ultimately the responsibility comes down to the user of this platform. That's what it comes down to. I mean, we are so far down the road with this. We know, we know for an absolute fact that um, Facebook, Reddit, you name it, the the misinformation, the nonsense runs rampant on there. Um, And trying to moderate it and trying to filter it and trying to fact check it and trying to correct it or trying to flag it, all these attempts have been made to little, if any at all, success, right? If you're going to be navigating these realms, you need to be aware that you need to do a little extra work to try and source the information and see if it's something you can actually believe in. A lot of you pointing out, hey, I follow QR77 on uh, Facebook. I follow Global News on Facebook. Are you telling me that's misinformation? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is that information spear and there's uh, there's good and there's bad information out there and you can you have to it comes down to you being able to assess the information that you're receiving as being credible or as being twisted you know and and it's hard to do because all of us have biases all of us have viewpoints all of us have opinions and when a story comes across our news feed that strokes that bias, makes us feel good, makes us feel smart, makes us feel right, our natural inclination is to go, there you go. See, there's a story that proves what I'm saying. Doesn't matter who said it. Doesn't matter if it's true. Doesn't matter if there's any facts or data to back it up. It just makes me feel good. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.